Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined by my partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair of Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. Elliot, great to be back with you this week. It's always good to be back with you, Eric. Let me introduce our guest, who I'm very excited to have with us. Major General Mick Ryan, uh, retired from the Australian Army after 35 years of service, including command at every level up to uh, brigade. He had uh, deployed in Afghanistan, a number of other countries. He was in charge of the Australian Army's military education and training programs. Uh, his last appointment was as the Commandant of the Australian Defense Academy. And I think, as well to our purposes, he's a genuine military intellectual. He wrote a terrific book called War Transformed. He's even a, a budding novelist. We'll get him to, to talk about that, a uh, fictionalized account of a war over Taiwan. For those of you who are not doing so already, you should really follow his Twitter feed, War in the Future, uh, and his Substack, um, in, in which he really lays out, I think, with far greater clarity than anyone else I've seen, the sort of basic kind of military calculations and ways of thinking, which are, are critical for understanding the Ukraine war. He is uh, he's really the, epi the epitome of an educated soldier, not only having graduated with distinction from the School of Advanced Warfare of uh, the United States Marine Corps, but far more importantly, from my point of view, Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, from which he graduated with distinction, and we don't give those things away lightly. So, Mick, it is terrific to have you with us. You know, you really are, I mean, I would say, you know, you're one of the premier military intellectuals in the West today. And I think reading the things you write reminds us just how valuable it is to have somebody who has not only the, the historical and theoretical knowledge, but that practical sense that you can only get from decades spent uh, soldiering. So welcome, Mick. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be here with Two of my old professors, and uh, you know, I'm really humbled that uh, I was invited to come on and, and talk to you both. Well, okay, that's that's the end of the nice stuff. Eric, begin the interrogation. <laughs> <laughs> it is great to have you, and I agree with everything Elliot said about the importance of people following your Twitter feed and your Substack uh, as well. Let's start with what's happening today with the Battle of Bakhmut. This has been going on now for about nine months. The Russian force has clearly been trying to encircle and cut off uh, the Ukrainian defenders in Bakhmut. It's not 100% clear, I don't think, why, in the sense that it's not a terribly strategic location. I mean, it, it does enable them, would enable them if they were to take it, to begin to press on to Slovyansk and Kramatorsk, but certainly doesn't seem worth the losses that they've taken. In the last 24 hours, the picture, if anything, has become more opaque. I mean, there have been some bridges blown by the Ukrainians. It's not clear whether they're 
engaged in a retrograde operation or whether they're actually going to stand and fight some more uh, and just inflict more losses. What's your sense? What's going on? Well, I think, you know, there's been two imperatives for the Ukrainians to stay here. One's political. I mean, both sides have invested uh, political value in this objective since the first fighting there in May last year. I mean, this has been a pretty long campaign and, you know, you had Zelensky visit there at least once. That invests uh, value in the place that it strategically just doesn't possess. But militarily, it's a, it's a cost imposition approach from the Ukrainians. They are uh, drawing the Russians into a fight um, to attract Russian forces, essentially, and to distract them from other places in the country, to have them commit forces that might be more meaningfully used just about anywhere else in Ukraine. I mean, the real decision for them is at what point does that cost imposition uh, wane away and they start having to focus more on force preservation. Do you think that's where they are at this point, Mick? I think they're close, um, but then again, Klaeswitz had something to say about these things too, when the emotions take over. Um, and I think, I think we've seen that all throughout this war, when things that seem the most logical military decision in the world are either delayed or don't happen because, you know, uh, one side or the other thinks they've invested so much or lost so many people in the place that they can't give it up. Um, there's probably a little bit of that going on at the moment, and I'm sure there's a discussion going on between General Zeluzhny and, and uh, President Zelensky on the political implications of staying versus leaving. It won't just be a pure military decision. Can I ask a, a, a follow-up question? Uh, and clearly, the Ukrainians are imposing horrific losses, particularly on the Wagner group, uh, although not just Wagner, uh, who are just sending men by their hundreds and thousands to their deaths. And they keep on going, in part because they really have no choice. Once once you've joined Wagner, you're you know, you're going to if you, if you don't advance, you're going to get uh, your head crushed by a sledgehammer, quite quite literally. Do do you think that this kind of attritional cost imposing strategy by the Ukrainians can work against a an organization that's so utterly ruthless about its own people? But in general, Russia, you know, which does have a much larger, at least potential population of uh, draftees and mobilized people uh, to, to bring to bear. You know, is there really long term damage being done to Russian military structures as a result of this that make it worthwhile? Because the Ukrainians are also suffering very heavily. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the great asymmetries about how these two countries are fighting, at least on the battlefield, the Russians are taking a total war approach. Everything is a target in Ukraine. It's people, it's city, it's armies, it's culture. Whereas the Ukrainians haven't taken that approach. They have a more values-based approach to war. They have not deliberately targeted uh, Russian civilians or Russian targets. And that's important for them to, I think, just for their own souls, as well as, you know, sustaining Western diplomatic and military and, and intelligence and economic support. I think at the political level, though, I mean, the Russians have not taken a total war approach. I mean, they have not fully mobilised their country. They have not fully mobilised their population. It was at best a partial mobilisation that was problematic. Industry is being mobilised, but even then that's about doubling and tripling shifts, not the massive expansion in the number of factories and things like that. Um, 
and the Ukrainians actually have mobilised their whole country. I mean, they inducted over 700,000 people into their military and other national security functions last year. They, they've mobilised their industry to build uh, weapons, including new ones, which have supplied the Russians. Um, you know, I think the Ukrainians have probably built a more durable model for this war of industrial systems because it's linked into Western supply chains in a way the Russians just are not able to do. I mean, even the Chinese are very limited in support and they're reduced to Iranian drones and North Korean ammunition, neither of which I would come within a mile of. Mick, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, because you've written about it, uh, the difficulties of executing a withdrawal under fire, what we in the U.S. call a retrograde uh, operation. It's a cliche of military affairs that this is one of the most difficult things to do. Arguably, General Surovikin uh, executed a, a withdrawal from Kherson, which was actually pretty effectively done, prevented the kind of rout in the south that we saw happen in Kharkiv Oblast when the Ukrainians went on the counteroffensive uh, back in the fall. So tell us a little bit about, for our listeners' benefit, Assuming that the Ukrainians are, in fact, going to make a strategic withdrawal to straighten their lines, assume better defensive positions, what are we likely to see over the next you know, days and maybe weeks as this plays out? Yeah, I mean, they're extraordinarily difficult. And the sort of Ekin leadership of the October-November Kherson withdrawal probably gives us a bit of a model. From a leadership perspective, you've got to explain to people why they're withdrawing. No one likes to withdraw. It's corrosive in units and, and morale. And if soldiers think that what they've done the last few months and losing their fellow soldiers is without any purpose, uh, that that has really bad impacts. Um, so you've got to be able to lead soldiers and to explain exactly why you're giving up certain pieces of ground, which is why we call it retrograde, not withdrawals, where possible. Um, another really important consideration, I think sort of Eakin appeared to have gotten this right, is deceive your adversary about, one, are you withdrawing, and two, what might be the timing of it? You know, once the enemy gets a sniff that you're withdrawing, boy, it's amazing how much extra capacity they can find to put pressure on you. One of the Australian Army's great claim to fame is we deceive the Turks about the withdrawal from Gallipoli. Um, but it's a case study that, you know, if the enemy doesn't know you're leaving, it makes your job a lot easier. Uh, and, and third, you've just got to decide what's the sequencing of it. It's extraordinarily difficult when your soldiers are under more pressure than normal and they're being fired on from all three sides to sustain battlefield discipline and get the order of the withdrawal right so you can achieve a clean break from the adversary and they can't do something that might end up in some massive killing spree. So you know, these are very, very difficult operations. And you know, I respect the Ukrainian high command for the kind of terrible decisions and this really brutal calculus that they're involved in at the moment. So let's assume that they can, um, they, the Ukrainians can withdraw and they've, there've been news reports about them preparing backup positions and so on, which would be the prudent thing to do. But what does the war look like after that? Let's say we wake up next week and they, they have indeed ceded Bakhmut to the Russians. Where, where does the war stand at that point? I think whether Ukraine holds or, or gives up Bakhmut, it's not going to change the course of this war. I mean, I'm sure there'll be lots of headlines in it, but the reality is it's not going to change the overall direction of this war. Indeed, it puts the Russians in a worse position because they've 
captured a pile of rubble and their next objective is on higher ground around a town that the Ukrainians have had, a, had eight, nine years to prepare defences for. So, you know, the Russians are in an even bigger quandary after this because they don't have a clear objective for what their next main effort might be. The Ukrainians have bled the Russians. You know, they're still kind of keeping their powder dry for when the mud's dry, mud dries out for when they launch their, their offensive, which we all assume is coming, I think it is. But, you know, the location and timing of that is something they've probably been wargaming for, you know, I'd say probably at least six months um, in, to just see where they might be able to hurt the Russians. And from my perspective, one of the things about the Russians is they've been entirely predictable over the last six months about how they're fighting. I mean, they would be much easier to wargame their future Ukrainian options against just because the Russians aren't doing anything that's terribly surprising. Mick, let me follow up on, on that a little bit. So one of the things that happened that enabled the Kharkiv offensive was that Ukrainians came to realize that a lot of the Russian units there were severely undermanned. And given the losses we've seen, and I don't know, I, I, you've probably seen it, you may have even tweeted about it, but the comment, I think it was Zaluzhny who made it, that the loss ratio in Bakhmut has been something like seven to one uh, for the Russians. I'm not sure whether that's accurate or not, but assuming it is, the Russian losses have just been enormous. And as you say, once they take Bakhmut, they're going to have a lot of, you know, uh, tired, undermanned, under-equipped units sort of strung out now across a longer front. Does that open up some opportunities for this counteroffensive that we've been talking about in the East? Because I think a lot of people have been thinking it'll come in the South, because obviously there's a big strategic imperative to break that land bridge that the Russians have created. But might it come in the East where they're, uh, you know, now uh, sort of surely undermanned and probably morale not not great? Yeah, if we recall what happened after the Severodonetsk campaign, Putin declared an operational pause um, just because they were exhausted in the Donbass. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Gerasimov might have to do something similar in the East after they take Bakhmut. Um I mean, Gerasimov's strategy so far is is a little weird. I mean, Putin keeps talking about how much time he has to win, whereas Gerasimov seems to be rushing to get a victory. There's, there's, a, there's an irony and a kind of disconnect there in Russian strategy and, and their military approach. I think there are opportunities in the east and the south, and any Ukrainian offensive has to take both into account. It's not an either-either, uh, but the sequencing and the orchestration between the two will be important. Um, Ukraine has to maintain pressure in the east because it can't afford for the Russians to really put pressure uh, on the Ukrainians around Kharkiv and, and closer to the Russian border whilst they're doing something in the south. So the, the east is in play regardless for the Ukrainians. It's just whether it's a main or a supporting effort, uh, whether it's a major push or whether it's a feint or, or, or a demonstration. Um, you know, I can see viable options in, in both regions. Um, but they have to take the south if they want any hope of putting pressure on the Russians at Crimea. And I, I, I believe Crimea is the end game here. Could you talk a little bit about what you think the potential is uh, for Ukrainian success? You know, we've been reading a lot about the uh, very extensive Russian fortifications uh, along the two major approaches to Crimea, indeed along the entire front. Uh, there's no secret that a lot of the Ukrainian units are pretty tired and they've suffered... Uh, terrific losses. 
Um, unfortunately, a lot of the you know, advanced tanks and so on that the West is shipping will probably not really be absorbed by the Ukrainian forces until, I don't know, maybe the summer or something like that. But realistically, what can one hope for from a Ukrainian offensive at particularly at this stage in the war, where both sides have to be exhausted. Um, I, both sides are tired, I think. But, you know, the one thing the Ukrainians have done consistently in this war is surprised us about their capability. They surprised us at the start of the war uh, by pushing the Russians away from Kiev. Uh, people then went, ah, oh, OK, so they can defend Kiev, but, you know, they won't be able to do anything else. Uh, and then they, you know, fought that battle in Donbass, really bled the Russians and then people went, well, they've, de they've defended OK, but they won't be able to do offensive very well, not like us. And then they smashed the Russians in Kharkiv uh, and did the same in Kherson. So at every step of the way, the, the Ukrainians have surprised us with how capable they are. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the most important is when you are under an existential threat, a whole range of things become possible that are not possible under any other circumstances. So uh, my view is don't underestimate the Ukrainians. They've surprised us before. They've certainly surprised the Russians throughout this war. That's why the Russians are in the mess they are in. And, you know, I think the Ukrainians are very capable uh, in generating uh, at least on one axis of advance a pretty powerful thrust that might be able to penetrate uh, into the Russian deep, deep spaces, not just into their tactical defensive lines. Um, so that's what I expect them to be aiming for in their next offensive. I think they're capable of it. The Russians just don't seem to have a modern war fighting capability and they keep reverting back to more and more ancient methods of defending and, and fighting in this war. Yeah, I, you know, I wrote a, uh, a piece in The Atlantic where I think I said the Russian army is now using pre-1918 tactics. Uh, it's not the sophisticated infiltration tactics of the... Uh, of the Germans in 1918, or the you know, very meticulous uh, planned attacks of uh, actually the Australian military on the Western Front, where actually you know American forces went into battle under um, Australian command. Why is that the case? I mean, you know, we I think most of us had this idea that the Russian military was a pretty sophisticated military. I mean, I remember. Lots of people swooning about the supposed Grasimov doctrine, you know, and their their performance has really been pathetic. You know, the the one, if you want to call it a bright spot for them, has been the withdrawal from Kursan, which you know you give them credit for. But why are they so bad? And then the next question has to be, and why didn't we see it? I'm sure there's going to be decades of analysis of this particular point, but um, you know. I think one of the rules that come out of this war is when a military organisation tells you it's really good, you need to scratch beneath the surface of that claim because uh, that's what the Russians are being telling us and that's what the Chinese are telling us at the moment about how good they are, how capable they are, how, how their transformation efforts have been really successful and, and, and these kind of things. Uh, the, you know, the reality is um, you can look at a military organisation and its weapons, its, its soldiers, its capabilities, its doctrine and all those kind of things, but until it actually interacts with an enemy, you, you just don't know how it's going to perform. Um, so, you know, this is why I'm always attracted to net assessment rather than, you know, single-sided assessments of one organisation. That's useful, but I think 
net assessment of military capability is a really important thing that you know the US does, the British have started doing, because it takes into account a whole range of things. And then you link that with wargaming to start saying what's the interactive um, parts of those, the relationship between that organisation and others, and what's the emergent behaviours of that organisation once it's under the pressure of combat, under the pressure of war back at home. Um, they're the things that were probably missing in the assessment of the Russian military. I think too many people took it as given that you know they were they'd come a long way, that the reforms for ten years had uh, largely changed them from a Soviet era to a post-Cold War professional joint uh, Western-like organisation. At least that was some of the assumptions, and that's kind of a, an overgeneralisation. Um, so I think that was part of it. I think to you know uh, many of the people doing this have a good sense of organisational theory and, and doctrine and things like that. But you've also got to have a sense of how military institutions really work. And you don't get that by studying reports or reading books or doing archival work. You've actually got to live in them just to see the dynamism and sometimes lack of dynamism in military institutions. So somehow you've got to combine all that. Mick, one of the things that you hear you know, or you read now is that increasingly, you know, at the Munich Security Conference and at meetings of government leaders, whether it's the EU or NATO, that although in public people remain very optimistic and bullish about the Ukrainians, as we have sort of been in this conversation privately in the chanceries, it's much darker and much more discussion about, you know, we're heading towards a frozen conflict or a stalemate. And of course, that'll have to be negotiated. I guess, I, you know, we've talked already and you've said, don't underestimate the Ukrainians. I take your point completely. I guess my question is a, a variant of the question that uh, Dave Petraeus famously asked Linda Robinson about, you know, Iraq. Tell me how this ends. What do you think, you know, the likely Kind of, as you were just saying, interaction will be if there is a Ukrainian counteroffensive. And how do you see this thing being brought to a close? You mentioned earlier Crimea, you think, is really the end game. But give us a sense of, you know, how you think that happens. And, and then a corollary. We've had enormous discussions in this country, as you know, about what longer range systems should be given to the Ukrainians that will allow them to get out to longer ranges than they can with the current Gimler's rounds they have for their uh, high mobility artillery systems uh, with some people saying attack them. Some people talking about the, you know, the ground launched small diameter bomb. Other people are talking about depickums and, and the, the kind of cluster munitions that come with those. What is your sense of what they, they need to, you know, sort of get on with it as it were? Um, they certainly need the technology. Um, they need reach, uh, longer reach, so they can get into the deep battle uh, against the Russians across the breadth of Ukrainian territory. I mean, Ukraine should be able to target every inch of Ukrainian soil upon which stands a Russian soldier, whether that's Crimea, uh, all the way up to uh, just inside the Ukrainian border with Russia or, or Belarus. So they should be given every weapon system that allows them to do that. Um, if they want to target their own sovereign territory occupied by Russians, they should be able to do that and we should give them the wherewithal. I think, you know, the the, the uh, kind of dark 
prognostications we see coming out of Munich is politicians are finally starting to get sticker shock from the war. They've realised again, uh, after 30 years of not having to do this, that this stuff is really expensive, you know, to sustain the industrial base, to produce a lot of things is quite expensive and winning costs. You can't, there's no fast, cheap and easy way to win a war. You've actually got to invest and politicians are starting to realise that. Um, they next need to realise that they have to do something, <laughs> you know, and, and, and make those kind of investments, which I think the US Army is doing and a couple of others, but not many others. They're still kind of in a shock that we've got to do more here. Um, I think the West is actually up to it. I mean, the reality is we're not providing huge amounts of AIDS as a proportion of our GDP. I mean, Australia's provision of AIDS has been really quite pathetic and parsimonious, if I'm honest. Um, there's a lot of countries that can step up their assist, uh, assistance to the Ukrainians. But, you know, how, how do they win? You know, I've just written a piece on the Ukrainian, what I call strategy of corrosion, and how to go with a theory of victory as part of that. Because, uh, you know, I, I thought back to Elliot's work and, and then Frank Hoffman beat me up about having a theory of victory. Uh, and, and the centre of it is the Ukrainians have to beat the Russians on the battlefield whilst uh, denying them sources of strategic support. I mean, that's... That's how they, they win this. I think uh, winning is possible. I know talking about winning is kind of unattractive to some people and it's not something we wanted to do in the last 30 years, but you've got to talk about winning. I mean, war is competitive and there's only two ways you can go. You can win or lose, and I don't want a silver medal in this, and I'm pretty sure the Ukrainians don't. Um, so there's a whole range of things that will be involved in victory here, but it, it takes commitment, uh, not interest. Both Eric and I absolutely and heartily agree with you. I'm wondering, you know, apropos of your comment about people in the West kind of waking up to what, not only the cost of war, but what war means and in a larger sense, what kind of world we actually live in. From, you know, your part of the world, Australia, setting aside the, the relative parsimoniousness of uh, what Australia has actually given to Ukraine, how would you say the war has affected Australians' view of the world at large and their own region? How has it affected the Australian government and the Australian military? Well, I think there was a surge of uh, focus on the war in the first few months. Um, certainly, there was a big demand uh, from different media organisations for, for stories and, and, and insights. I think that's kind of faded quite a bit. Um, particularly as we reach the one-year mark. I mean, it's a story that hasn't quite disappeared, but it's not as obvious as it was, say, even a few months ago. Buckmore has kind of reinvigorated that. Um, I think there's been a little bit of cherry-picking of uh, observations from the war. I mean, the death of tanks narrative has been very strong here. There's a strong anti-tank uh, community in Canberra amongst the public service and academia. And this has just given them evidence. Uh, they haven't looked at uh, things like uh, integrated air defence and what that means for crude fighters and stuff. But certainly it's had that impact. Um, and there's also been a, a little bit more of a focus on, OK, if one small democracy can be preyed upon by a large authoritarian in Europe, what does that mean for Taiwan? And therefore, what does that mean for Australia's national security policy? Um, so, you know, this Defence Strategic Review, which has been delivered to government, which should be announced... I hope in April, uh, is designed to kind of be Australia's response to both Ukraine, but also this new security environment that we're seeing through Chinese aggression 
and coercion in our region. You mentioned the tank anti-tank debate, and that that leads to a different question I wanted to ask you, which is, uh, it struck me when I've spoken with people in the American military, the predominant view seems to be, well, this is kind of World War I with drones uh, added into the mix. Now, there are a few other people saying, no, 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 this is actually, uh, uh, this conflict is quite revelatory of what modern war looks like, and there are a whole bunch of issues that are associated with it, and therefore we better be quite serious in trying to learn such lessons as there are. And I'm curious to know where you are in uh, in that debate, and to the extent that you are somebody who feels that, no, this is a modern war which really needs to be studied quite carefully, and not just a reprise of the wars of the the major wars of the last century. What what are some of the standout aspects of it? Yeah, I think World War One with drones is too too simple. I mean, every war is an aggregation of every war that's gone before, plus a few new things, whether it's geography, politics, technology, concepts. Um, so I think you know this is if you look closely at this war, you can see the strata of every single war that's gone before, including Afghanistan and Iran, plus a few new things. Uh, I think the few new things, firstly, is the autonomous systems that you've mentioned. You know, we're seeing in the air, um, we are seeing a better response now in counter-autonomy systems, but we're a long way behind there. Um, We are starting to see uncrewed ground systems. We could really see them proliferate if the Russians and Ukrainians get them right, particularly lethal ones. So that's the autonomy space. I think the second one is uh, strategic influence has been a really interesting lesson from this. You know, the Ukrainians are really good at it, but they don't do it all. It's been a combination of the Ukrainians, the West, government and citizens around the world joining a global kind of influence campaign to show off Ukraine uh, or what and do what NAFO does, which is what they call... Uh, you know, what posting Russia and a whole range of things. But I think strategic influence is a really big lesson out of uh, this war. And I think the third one is it's reinvigorated the study of leadership. I mean, military organisations without good leadership aren't good military organisations. Countries without good leadership aren't good countries, I think. Um, And I think Zelensky has single-handedly reminded us all that good leadership at every single level is essential for successful institutions, be they government, military, private, um, academic. It, do, it doesn't matter. So for me, they're three of the big things out of this war uh, that bear close study among the many, many, many other lessons in strategy operations and tactics. Just one quick follow-up and then uh, over to Eric. What about those arguments that have been made for, if not the obsolescence of the tank, the devaluing it, of it, but I would also say some people have said similar things about attack helicopters, and they're even saying somewhat similar things about jets being used for close air support. And and there's a, in fact, a kind of a broader argument that I think some people make, which I confess I have some sympathy to, that the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq really distorted our understanding of the modern battlefield, because the United States and its allies had this overwhelming total air supremacy, and they really did, they were not up on the ground, they were not up against people who could really, you know, take out tanks or shoot down 
helicopters unless they got really lucky. So, you know, those particular systems, is is there a story there? Oh, I think so. And, you know, one of the other stories from places like Afghanistan is it was probably the most densely surveilled battlefield in the history of uh, humankind. And we still used to get surprised all the time by the enemy. I mean, I think that was the most relevant lesson for, from Afghanistan for me, having served there. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think you're right. There are some systems that either need to be used very differently in future or may not be as relevant in the future. I mean, is the tank, uh, the horse cavalry, of its time or not. Uh, I don't think it is because both the Russians and the Ukrainians want them and are using them because they see them as useful, survivable, mobile and lethal platforms that used cleverly are very effective. I do think things like attack helicopters are different. I I don't know whether they're survivable in how they're used currently. I I just, I I think the Australian Army should get rid of it. The Japanese are getting rid of theirs because they're just not survivable. Uh, because the Ukrainians have proved that a modern, integrated anti-missile drone and air defence system, even with old bits as well as some new digital uh, backbone joining it all up, can be extraordinarily difficult to penetrate. Uh, And I'm not sure air forces are paying sufficient heed to how difficult their job's going to be in future. There's not a lot for navies out of this other than, you know, don't do dumb stuff as a Navy captain and just sit there and be a target. Um, But I think ground forces really need to look at all the data from this and do the kind of thing the US Army did post-73, looking at the Arab-Israeli walls, because that that resulted in airline battle, it resulted in the big five US Army systems, and it, it resulted in a reinvigoration of the US Army's training and education system. Um, and these are the kind of outcomes that we should be seeing out of Ukraine. And I know the U.S. military is, is starting to look at this, particularly the U.S. Army and what it means for the Pacific. Uh, but for me, the big thing is which lessons are appropriate to this war and which lessons are appropriate to all wars. And that will take some careful sifting through, I think. Mick, I agree that uh, the information space is uh, one that is going to merit a lot of study. And the Ukrainians claim that 10,000 Russians have surrendered in response to their information operation with a number a number to call if you want to you know if you want to give yourself up i don't know if that's accurate or if that number itself is part of an information operation but uh, if it's even close to uh, to accurate it's pretty extraordinary and it shows i think one of the um, sort of asymmetric advantages that you've been talking about that the ukrainians have which is their ability to innovate on the fly which has been, you know, really, uh, really impressive. I, I guess uh, that prompts me to ask a question. You know, uh, you wrote this uh, wonderful book, The Future of War, which uh, I think the publication date, at least in the U.S., was February 15th, 2022. So it was about, you know, less than a fortnight before this war actually broke out, which was, you know, therefore going to test all of the propositions that you had you know, uh, bravely put down on paper uh, for us to now, you know, grade your homework. So um, what, uh, if anything, uh, has surprised you after having been through the discipline for several years of working on and and writing a book and then having something, you know, like this break out? uh, Has anything surprised you? And if so, what? Uh, Not a lot. There's been far more continuity than than new things in this war. I mean, I've been pleasantly uh, surprised by some of the things the Ukrainians have done. 
Um, I guess two things have surprised me. Firstly, just how slow the Russians have been to learn. Um, I haven't been that surprised by how bad they are. I mean, that happens in war. Some armies who look good, uh, like the French army on you know May 8th, 1940, look really good. On May 11th, 1940, look terrible. Um, and, you know, it's the same with the Russians here, but it surprised me how slow they have been to learn and adapt in particular compared to the Ukrainians. Um, the second thing is I've been surprised by how surprised a lot of others are <laughs> by what's gone on, because most of what we're seeing is absolutely normal for these kind of large scale wars between big, well-populated, relatively wealthy, industrialised countries. I mean, we've seen this half a dozen times since the first Industrial Revolution, at least. Um, and it, it's kind of shocked me that just how uneducated the vast majority of the commentariat is about what war is. Um, you know, it says to me there's a real gap in our education about war as a phenomenon, which is my real interest, um, and how it evolves and how it doesn't. And uh, that, for me, has probably been the biggest shock, is just how uninformed many people in the population, many people in government and many people in, I'll broadly call the commentariat, just are when it comes to the basics of fighting large wars. You know, war is, um, on both sides, it seems to be usually a competition in learning because as uh, the great British military historian Michael Howard uh, put it, you know, no army gets it right at the beginning of the war. The question is who adapts quicker. So for me, the uh, the, the puzzling, and, and when you think about Ukraine, which has, I think, learned and adapted very quickly, the sort of makes sense given the kind of society they have, low-level initiative, makes it somewhat chaotic, but uh, nonetheless, you can understand why they would learn quickly. It, it is somewhat surprising to me that the Russians have been so bad at it and so bad at recovery. I mean, they, it's not like they haven't had this kind of issue before. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any inkling why that's the case. Why why can't they learn? Why, why don't they end up, you know, finding the really competent young captains and making them colonels and the really competent young lieutenant colonels and making them generals um, and, and adapting that way? That, why, why do you think that isn't happening? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, at least... Uh, on paper that, you know, the Russians have a pretty good system for developing doctrine and military theory and, and nurturing at least the big ideas in war. Um, but they seem to be not great at training their people uh, to actually fight wars, particularly at the tactical level. Uh, you know, there's clearly some systemic issues that they haven't fixed in with hazing, uh, the incentives for service uh, and these kind of things. Uh, and as other commentators have highlighted, you know, the the Russian army now is not the old Soviet army. There's a higher level of corruption now and, and, and readiness padding compared to what we might have seen in the Soviet era. You know, there's, a, there's a greater kleptocracy you know, in the military that wasn't as uh, prevalent, say, in the Soviet era. So I think all that goes in. I think you know, uh, Russia is still struggling with its place in the world post-1991. For a lot of them, they just haven't got over what happened with the collapse of the war? Certainly Putin hasn't, and he's beaten that drum for a long time now. So I think, you know, there's no single answer here. There's a whole range of uh, strategic, political and, and institutional factors that mean they just don't have the drive to learn like the Ukrainians do. And, and I'll go back to this 
the existential threat. The Russians aren't under an existential threat here. Putin might talk about it from NATO, but most Russians understand they're not under a daily threat, uh, the same as Ukrainians are. And when you're under that daily threat to your life and your family's life, it changes how you think and it changes your risk calculus and it changes just how creative and innovative you're willing to be. And that's what the Ukrainians have done and the Russians have it. One observation people have made continually, of course, has been the absence of a non-commissioned officer corps in the Russian army. Do you, do you think that is a major contributing factor to some of, of what you've just been discussing? I think we've over-egged that one, to be honest. I think that the Russian military, like the Ukrainian military, has a system where those functions are undertaken. They're just not undertaken by the kind of people that we do in the West. I mean, they have, whether it's lieutenants or, or senior enlisted people undertake the functions that we normally have with lance corporals, corporals and sergeants. It doesn't mean uh, they're any worse than, than us. They still have the same functions to undertake. But I think we need to be careful not to mirror image the Russians or even the Ukrainians, which, by the way, doesn't have a strong NCO corps just yet. They still use senior soldiers. I don't think it's a major contributor in, in Russian problems, to be, to be honest. I think in some respects we're just projecting ourselves on them to try and find a, a reason uh, for their lack of success. I think the reasons go much deeper than, oh, they don't have NCOs. You know, there's, uh, it's interesting because the Israelis traditionally never had much of a NCO corps either. And in some ways, you know, they, they had a somewhat similar uh, system, I, I think. I I was wondering if we could um, sort of move a bit beyond Russia, Ukraine and talk in general about how one should think about the future of war, how people should educate themselves about it. You know, one thing that I've um, I've always uh, uh, admired about you, Mick, is uh, and this was particularly true when you're you were the commandant of the Australian Defense College. You took science fiction and you take science fiction very seriously as a military science fiction. Uh, you've written some about it. Uh, I believe you're continuing to do so. I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about that. Why science fiction? Who some of your favorite writers are? What, what is it that uh, you know, those of us who are listening to the, this podcast can, can learn from it? Yeah, I, I, I go back to Sir Michael Howard, who you know, wrote about you know, uh, most practitioners in the military rarely get to practice their art and they have to study military history to prepare for it just in case. I think you can also you can study the future at the same time um, in order to kind of broaden your conception of what, about what war is, about how new technologies might have an impact, particularly uh, the ethical impacts of things like artificial intelligence, lethal autonomous systems. And, you know, for me, this was a mechanism by which you can say to military officers who generally exist in a hierarchical system without huge incentives for innovation to say to them, it's actually okay to be a bit more creative. Um, so we used to do papers for our chief of defence on a range of futures issues looking 10 to 20 years in the future. And I just found it a good way to nurture the ability to take intellectual risk in our future leaders. Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of different books you can use for that. There's the classics from Asimov and, and others, but there's a new generation of young science fiction writers and not so young science fiction writers. You know, there's John Scalzi, Martha Wells and, and others like this who've written on issues related to the profession of arms that I think are quite insightful 
and are really important for intellectually preparing our future leaders. So, and I, I guess um, sort of my final question to you is, most of the listeners to this podcast, I'm pretty sure, are not professional officers. And even if they are, you know, I think we're all we're all aware that it's going to be, uh, that it is difficult to follow an ongoing war and make sensible judgments about it. What are your suggestions? Well, I think you've got to read. I mean, that's, that's the most fundamental uh, discipline. If you want to understand what's going on in the world around you, it's, it's moving too quickly. And as much as we'd love to spend more time in the schoolhouse and, you know, I'd, I'd love to be sitting in a class in Johns Hopkins size right now if I could. Uh, but we can't do that. You can't do it in the military. You can't do it in national security enterprise. And you can't do it in the broader world. So I think you've got to have the discipline of self-learning. You've got to dedicate yourself to understanding more about the world around you, whether it's technology, war, uh, economics, um, intelligence and other things. Um, so I, I think that's the easiest and the, the most fundamental way of doing this. And then talk with people who you agree with and talk with people you don't agree with is important once you've done done the baseline reading. Um, and I think they're the two most important skills you can have. You don't need to be an expert, but you should be informed and you should be able to uh, understand that different diverse views around individual subjects is really important. Mick, this has been a terrific conversation. You um, have actually put some of this into practice, haven't you, in terms of uh, the use of uh, fiction um, in your most recent work? Do you want to tell our listeners about it and, and how they how they can get a hold of it? Yes, I, I decided to, uh, my, my follow-up to the War Transform book is a, a fictional account of a war over Taiwan called White Sun War. Uh, we published in uh, on 30 April in, in the United States. And it's very much along the same lines as the killer angels of a historian looking back at a future war through the eyes of key participants. And for me, the key participants are those in new kinds of units, whether it's Space Command, Marine Littoral Regiments, Chinese Marines, or even just young officers who are commanding uh, human machine teams with lots of robotic systems and humans in them. So, you know, I look at a lot of the technology, but also the ethics um, and also a lot of the ideas and organisations that I think are going to have to change uh, when it comes to what we might have to face in the Western Pacific. Well, listen, I uh, just want to say how grateful I am that you could join us and say how important a role you you play, uh, Mick. There are, you know, a long time ago, you had a, a generation of people like... Uh, General John Galvin uh, and others, but they're always few and far between. And it's a really an indispensable role because you know, even civilians like uh, Eric and myself have read a lot of military history and studied this stuff very closely. It's not quite the same thing. So we're, we're really grateful to you for what you're doing. And I would just urge people who are listening to the podcast to follow you on Twitter and on Substack and uh, to buy that novel. Eric, over to you. And to read The Future of War, which uh, will tell them a lot that they didn't know and will help them appreciate what uh, they're reading from Mick and, and from you, Elliot, from Phillips O'Brien, from our good friends over at the Institute for the Study of War, Fred and Kim Kagan, etc. And with that, we'll have to bring this episode of Shield of the Republic to a close because I know Mick has another engagement he has to move on to. But Mick, we're really very grateful you spent the time with us. If you enjoy Shield of the Republic, 
Give us a review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from, and drop us a line at shieldofthepublic at gmail.com. 